This is another iRaw podcast. How do we move from that concrete connection and, and appreciation of their experience, understanding, I think, at some level of, of experiencing and, and shared experiencing and, mm-hmm. yeah, and start to translate that into um, more systemic terms, more communal terms. Um, that's, you know, to me is the real challenge, I guess, of, of animal politics and doing democracy with animals. Welcome back to the Animal Turn podcast, a podcast where every season is centered around a particular theme and every episode unpacks a concept pertaining to that theme. The first season looks at animals and the law and the second season is focused on animals and experience. Before getting into what today's episode is about, I just wanted to take a spot of time to note the work that's being done by animal justice here in Canada. Animal justice recently released an expose about some of the really the atrocities that are happening on industrial-scaled farms. Uh, And this was a pig farm in Ontario. And they're using this expose as a way in which to highlight and question the implementation of ag-gag laws in Ontario. Uh, Ag-gag laws will stop any sort of advocate, whether human or animal rights advocate, from accessing and exposing these types of practices. If you're interested in the work that they're doing, I encourage you to head over to their website and consider contributing too. Now, this expose came out after I'd done my interview with Sue Donaldson, who is my guest today. But after having watched some of the footage, I really do see the significance of flagging politics when thinking about our relationships with animals. Uh, It really is significant and important to think through the legislation and the policies that are in place uh, and how they pertain and relate to animals. Sue Donaldson is a writer and an animal advocate, and she is a research associate at the Department of Philosophy at Queen's University in Kingston. She's also the co-convener of Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics Research Group. Uh, She's the author of four books and a dozen articles, primarily focusing on animal rights and politics, questions of political community, political agency, and doing democracy with animal rights are central to her current work, and her most recent publication is Animal Agora, Animal Citizens and the Democratic Challenge. This is forthcoming uh, in social theory and practice. So Sue cares deeply about how politics are implicated with uh, human relations with animals as well as animal-to-animal relations and how we should think through those. So it's one thing to think about animals' experience and to appreciate and understand and accept that animals have distinct special, wonderful ways of experiencing the world. And it's another level to then say, okay, now that we know that they experience the world, what implications does that have? What does it call upon us as humans who have animals within our communities to do? What are our responsibilities and obligations uh, as beings that exist within political communities? So some of these threads are picked up in the interview itself. We go in a variety of different directions, but I think Sue is really eloquent in flagging the absolute significance and importance of politics. So I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Hi, Sue. Welcome to the Animal Tone. Thank you, Claudia. It's lovely to be here. 
I'm beyond excited and happy to have you here because uh, I think without you, the Animal Tone podcast would not actually be a podcast. I remember us sitting, me with my bushy-tailed, big PhD eyes, looking at you next to a field and saying, Sue, I have this idea. What do you think? Um, and you and the folks at Apple just saying, yeah, that sounds great. So it's really just fantastic to have you here. And right at the beginning of the show, I just wanted to say uh, thank you so much for the support and the guidance you've given in for the show in general. Oh, you're most welcome. And and, uh, and thank you um, for on my own behalf and, and Apple's behalf. I mean, we're just thrilled with the series and I've learned so much from your interviews. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, and, and today we're going to speak. So I've had Will on the show uh, in in the first season when we spoke about animals and the law. And it's really exciting to have you here in the second season where we're focusing in on animals and experience. Uh, but before we get into our concept for today, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved in animal studies and animal study scholarship? Oh, yes. Well, um, it's a long journey, I guess. I, probably similar to many others um, in that... Um, you know, growing up, animals were very important to me, and I was lucky to live in the countryside and spent a lot of time observing animals and uh, uh, time with companion animals. So, so there was always that curiosity, I guess, and connection. And then a, an important turning point was um, this would be in the mid to late 80s, I guess. I was part of a feminist collective, and one of my colleagues there just over a drink one day, I guess, explained to me why she was a vegetarian and explained to me about the horrors of, you know, what we do to animals and that it's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And I was just completely persuaded by her. I just had not thought about it seriously. Uh, I was completely persuaded by this conversation. And so, um, uh, and so I went home and, uh, I sort of repeated the conversation to Will and we talked about it further. And, and that was, so that was uh, one turning point from, from, you know, we quickly transitioned to vegetarianism and, and uh, eventually veganism. And I started reading animal rights literature quite seriously. Um, so that was, that was an important moment. And I guess for several years, I, I thought of my relationship to the, animal movement, um, not as a researcher and writer, but uh, more as an advocate. And I did start, mm -hmm. uh, I've always been involved in different kinds of advocacy, but eventually I started, you know, doing vegan education and outreach and certain things like that. And I guess it was sort of in the, around 2004, five, six in there that I started to think more in terms of wanting to contribute to the intellectual and scholarly debates mm -hmm. around animals and animal rights. So I think I started to feel some dissatisfaction uh, up until that point. Basically, I just sort of thought, well, there's a moral argument here about the uh, the wrongness of so many things that we ways that we treat animals, and I was just persuaded by that and and. Um, and I wasn't quite sure what more I needed to think about it. Or, um, but I, I started to become dissatisfied with that, with stopping there, mm -hmm. I guess. Started to realize that there was much more than a question of, of ethics here, much more complicated. 
That's amazing. Um, just the idea, I think it just goes to show how important conversations are. Uh, you know, sometimes if you are having a conversation with someone with, with whatever it is, whether you're speaking about feminism um, or you're speaking about veganism, you feel like what use does a conversation have? What, what significance does a conversation have? But it sounds here like, you know, that was a really subversive and important moment in your life, which is I think it's just really important to reflect on. I always think that uh, conversations conversations matter. You might not see how they – I don't know if they always come as starkly as what you experienced there, uh, but that's really incredible. Does, uh, does your friend know what a profound impact they had on your life? I don't think so, no. We, you know, I, I never had real contact with her after that. I have no idea where she is. So, uh, yeah, Chris, if you're out there somewhere, thank you. Yeah, so no, absolutely was quite a stark moment, as you say. And I guess the important thing that I left out of that sort of brief, that accounting of the journey was that starting in the early 90s, Will and I started living with with dog companions, our own uh, Cody and Tika, and also, you know, at various points, dogs of friends and so on that we were taking care of. Anyway, I think one of the reasons I started to be dissatisfied with the standard limita- the limitations, I guess, of, the, of uh, animal rights literature was that in living with dogs, I came to realize that there was so much more I needed to think about beyond their basic negative rights, you know, to, uh, uh, so, so there were lots of things that I should not do to them. And there were lots of things I needed to, ways I needed to care for them. So I completely always understood from the beginning that I had these obligations of um, to to protect them and to provide for them and to love them. But over time, they, uh, and this is through their agency, they, they started to insert themselves into our sense of family and how, how we made decisions as a family. And I realized that basically, we had been living with them on the assumption that they sort of would accommodate to our life. Right. It was me and Will mm-hmm. who decided where we live and who our friends are and what kinds of activities we do. And of course, we would take Cody and Tika into account, but we didn't, we, we still thought of them somehow as being, um, accommodating themselves, I suppose, to our, to our lives. And over time, we realized that, uh, so partly that they started to insist uh, that they had views about how, how our life should be as a, as a family. Uh, and we started to realize, wow, of course, why, why do we get to make all these decisions? Why, why isn't it as much their choice about where we live and how we live and who we associate with and could you give an example of how they did that, how they inserted themselves and made made it known that they wanted something? Well, it was partly it was partly just about you know asserting the desire to spend a lot more time outside and a lot more time walking. So Cody would do that by taking mm-hmm. off for three or four hours. Um, and so you know, so that was a pretty clear indication that that you know, uh, one to two hours of walking a day wasn't enough and we, and we needed to make some changes. But I would say it was also how they responded to other people and and that we would, you know, we gradually realized that there were people that they really liked and liked to spend time with. Um, and so when it came to when we would have to, when we were traveling, say, and needed to leave the dogs, um, that we realized that it was really important who 
who stayed with them because they had real preferences about that. And um, some of this is quite unconscious, right? I think in a lot of ways we, we, um, we were making these adaptations without being really thinking, thinking it through in an explicit way. I think the longer we lived with them, the more we did start to try and think a bit more explicitly about what, you know, what are they telling us about how they want to live and uh, what they like doing and, and I guess it's, uh, I think, you know, most people, I hope most people who, who live with uh, animal companions are, are, are making these adjustments uh, in, in many ways. But I think we also then started to think about what that means in larger terms about human and animal relations and how, um, you know, so we were thinking in terms of what's happening in our whole household as a family. But I think that started getting us thinking, well, well, what about what about the town we live in or the country we live mm-hmm. in? Why why do we just expect animals to accommodate to all these structures and all these ways that we've designed the world, rather than um, thinking of this as a, a project we would do together? So, so the seeds of that were very much planted, I would say, um, with our uh, companions. So you found yourself coming to, to Animal Studies Scholarship through, I mean, I guess through an idea, ideas about what you were eating, but also through having close proximity to animals, uh, animals in your life and, and starting to realize that they were deserving, uh, not only in your home, but in your community uh, of consideration. And I think this, this brings us uh, well to what the focus of the episode is today, which is looking at community. And we've had a bit of back and forth about, you know, today's episode and whether we should be calling it community or multi-species community or multi-species political community. Because when thinking about community itself, it's one of these concepts and it seems to be the the trend in this uh, season where you have words like culture that seem really obvious um, or subjectivity that seem somewhat obvious. But the more you look at it, the more complicated it gets. Uh, so perhaps before we start to unravel some of the multi-species components of uh, community and the ways in which you look at communities, could you give me a sense of what for you is a community? So there are so uh, in line with many of the wonderful interviews you've been having this uh, this season, we've seen a major sort of turn in the social animal turn in the social sciences and recognition that ideas like culture, society, community, that these are not human specific terms, that animals belong to communities, to cultures, to societies. And there's many different ways we could think about how these terms relate together. I guess in very general terms, I would, I'm inclined to think that, um, you know, culture is a very broad term and, and within cultures, there are ways that we form. One, one dimension of culture is how we form ourselves into communities and, and political community is a specific dimension of, of how we form ourselves into communities. But basically as social animals, uh, humans and many, many other social animals, we, we coordinate, coordinate ourselves, um, as communities. We, we need to cooperate. We want to be together. We, we um, support each other and uh, engage in all kinds of activities together. Um, and so within these communities, this, 
this dimension of coordination in particular. So how do we how do we decide as a community, you know, how how we're going to do things together? Uh, how do we make decisions that affect us as as a group? And that's where politics comes in. So political community is about how we sort of constitute ourselves as a group where we're making shared decisions. We're making decisions that are going to affect everyone in the group and that hopefully will allow us to 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 cooperate and to uh, live alongside each other uh, in ways that are are peaceful and um, mutually beneficial and to have ways of resolving inevitable conflicts. Our community is not always political. Um, so how would I differentiate between, uh, you know, if you've got any band of, of people or beings together, uh, I guess I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out how any community could not be political. So there are um, dimensions and degrees of of politics, and often people will distinguish between sort of small p politics and large p politics. But if you think of like the Kingston chess community, that's a kind of community, right? And uh, mm-hmm. they get together regularly and play chess. Um, and they certainly have to make certain decisions as a group. But it's a very it's uh, it's a community based around a very specific interest, fairly narrow interest, and uh, and because it's a an association of people who actually want to do this activity together, there isn't a whole lot of built in conflict to you know uh, chess community. No doubt they eventually have uh, or occasionally have disagreements about how to organize the tournament or whatever. But usually mm-hmm. when we think of political community, we're thinking about, so on broader spectrum terms, so more uh, uh, how a community is coordinating itself a- across a whole range of activities. Uh, we're thinking about things where there is inevitably a lot of conflict, a lot of disagreement about how how we should do things, how we should coordinate activities. And when we really get into sort of Big P politics, we're talking about um, uh, authority and power. So in the chess community, um, so first of all, if I don't really like the way the chess community is going, I can just sort of leave and join another one. It's no big deal. Uh, If I don't uh, like the rules of the community and I uh, violate them, I might get kicked out, but nobody can put me in jail. Or So when we're talking about big P politics, we're talking about the community as a uh, as an entity where where we are uh, are involved in coordinating activity and the establishment of norms that have legal and political authority. So um, so there are real consequences to mm-hmm. to how we develop those norms uh, because they they have much more serious implications for individuals. So you know this, the the authorities can come and take you know, a certain amount of money off my check to pay taxes for, you know, um, public institutions and services. You know, the chess club doesn't have that kind of authority. And there's all kinds of communities within communities that don't have that sort of political coercive power that that states and sub-state political entities do. So I guess what, what, what some folks might be thinking now, so I'm getting a sense that you have smaller scale communities where there might perhaps be what you said, 
small p politics, um, but that the stakes are fairly uh, innocuous in terms of what the ramifications are for not participating well within that community. But the more severe or the more intense the authority or the ramifications of how you participate, the more the bigger the p becomes, I guess. <laughs> um, and, I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm not very good with the uh, the understanding of small letters and big letters in philosophy. That seems to be a thing, like like lowercase n, capital N for nature. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't know if I quite get it. But um, well, okay. uh, here another so way got- of thinking. Of, sorry to interrupt, but another way of thinking about it is just you know how do you think about government? So government is about big mm-hmm. P politics, right? When we think about the chess community in, in Kingston, we don't think of, they're, they're not a government. Um, they, they don't yeah. have the power to make decisions that affect the whole community. How do you envision animals being part of these communities? So we've got, and I'm, I'm imagining that animals could be part of both, you know, both levels of communities. Um, but it might be hard for, for folks to try and imagine, you know, the chess community. I, I don't imagine animals playing chess or being in government necessarily. So how do we start to think about animals and their experiences in communities? Yeah. Okay. So, so stepping back to, um, what we were talking about earlier, just the, the, the broad sort of social and cultural turn, animal turn. So we now recognize uh, that in many ways, animals, at least certain kinds of animals, are members of communities with us, right? So whether that's the the local neighborhood, uh, animals are part of neighborhoods with us. Animals are part Mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, members of, of uh, of the city, uh, and share and share that kind of community with us. Um, we can think about things like, you know, the community at the dog park. So there's a dog park community, right? The, the regulars who go there and have, they develop certain norms about how to interact. And uh, so there's just like, just like human animals, uh, non-human animals belong to many, can belong to many different kinds of communities that overlap in different ways. And when we, when we start to think about their, role or their rights within these communities, going back to sort of what I said earlier about when I living um, with dogs, when uh, I started to realize that our family life was sort of determined by the humans with the expectation that that the animal members of the family sort of just kind of went along and accommodated. Um, and so we can think about that in larger terms, that all these other sorts of community that we share with non-human animals, that there's general assumptions in many ways that these are human communities. The neighborhood, oh, it's a human neighborhood. Yeah, lots of dogs live or cats or uh, squirrels or lots of other animals live in this community. But the, the decisions about you know the roads or the buildings or or the the norms of social interaction all of that gets the, it's humans who make those make those rules and mm-hmm. make those decisions uh, and animals are just supposed to accommodate as best they can so so the uh, uh, in in very broad political terms one would want to think that well why is that the case um, and why shouldn't animals this is their home just as much as ours why shouldn't they get to uh, be as involved in those decisions that shape the nature of the the different kinds of community that we share so that's that's the sort of 
entry point, I guess, for thinking about um, animal politics is that um, why, yeah, why aren't they as involved uh, or as entitled to have the opportunity to shape these norms, shape these structures, shape these environments, shape these relationships uh, mm-hmm. as as human members of, of different kinds of communities are. Um, and moreover, I would argue that we do need to think about animals' participation in governance. So it's it's precisely the fact that animals are governed by human-dominated governing structures, right, that that make all of these decisions about that we favor roads and cars, say, over foot traffic, or that we favor certain kinds of buildings instead of green spaces, or that we provide emergency services for humans in trouble, but not for the animal members of the community, or, and so on and so forth. So, so animals do need to have an opportunity to shape those government decisions that affect the community as a whole, not just not just their immediate relationships or what's going on in their own family or their own neighborhood. Um, they have important interests in, uh, in, in these larger questions about uh, how the community, um, the city, the country, um, decisions that are made on that level as well. So, um, so a key question I think for animal politics is, is actually how we do bring them into government. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. It's really profound what you're saying, because, you know, when you were talking in the beginning there about our society and our spaces and cities, you you know, I thought about... um, local dog park, you know, maybe dogs and dog parks are one of the, the areas in which we've started to think about the needs of other other species within our cities. Uh, but then I know um, also another fellow at Apple, Siobhan, she's doing work on monkeys in Costa Rica. And something that's always stood out in my mind is she said, one of the leading things that kill monkeys in the country is not poaching, but actually electric wires uh, because they haven't been insulated. And what seems to me that if consideration at the community level or in the political level were taken seriously, that that would be something that would be addressed if they were seen as being, uh, you know, important. So even at our own, in our own town, Kingston, you see squirrels constantly running and using electric wires. And I see your point now with regards to politics because it all becomes a question of resources, right? Is spending resources on insulating the electric wires the most important place to spend those resources? Uh, is making sure that squirrels have 
safe uh, highways to use or parallel highways? Or um, what are those things they now do for, in some communities where they're starting to create little tunnels under roads because they're finding that animals will die in far fewer numbers with just a small fix of making a little tunnel under a road? So I think I'm seeing now where the politics comes in. And for me, as you said, it comes in with conflict and conflict over how resources are used. That's just, yeah, brilliantly put. So that's exactly why without animals actually being empowered in politics, they're never going to win, right? When, when the question comes down to limited resources and what are our priorities as a community, political entities, whether they are city governments or provincial governments or national governments, they are never asking the question, what do the animals in this community need? And 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 certainly never considering that they should have a fair share of resources devoted uh, to mm-hmm. things that are really important to them. Um, so that's exactly right. So what community then, in coming to the theme of this season, in looking at experience, so your idea here of, of community and in particular, you know, political community for animals, would that, how does this help us think about experience? Is this more a concept that helps us to think about how to take animals' experiences seriously and to consider them at a political level? Or is this also a tool from which or through which we can actually understand how animals experience the world? So I think it's both. So, um, so one thing So when we think about the question of why it's important to empower animals to be able to shape the communities that we share with them. So one way of thinking about that is because they have their own ways of experience in the world. They have their own interests. And and we don't know. We We don't often don't know what's in their best interests or what ideas they have about how we should live together or what they might bring to how, how they might reshape communities if they were empowered to do that. So politics is a way of recognizing that, that they have experience and they have given the opportunity, they have knowledge and competences that can, they can contribute to, to the public good. Um, so politics is, is a, is a, so the more inclusive our politics, the better job we do of integrating all the members of the community into helping to shape that community, the more creative resources we have for creating a public good and um, for generating mm-hmm. ideas about how to live together. So that's one, politics is a, is a kind of avenue for that. But politics is also crucial for, so on, on the, that's, sort of the input side, but when you think more of the output side, so so politics is how we distribute resources and opportunities. And so obviously in our currently in our societies, we just we we provide most animals with no opportunities, uh, especially domesticated animals who are farmed or used for experimentation or all these things are utterly limited in their opportunities, not just to live, but to to develop, to be social and cultural beings. Um, I mean, they do the best that they can under uh, terrible circumstances to, to 
to resist and to, you know, to be agents and to fight back. But but in terms of actually having any positive structure to to develop as individuals, and that means to have experiences and to have good experiences and learning experiences and deepening and enriching experiences that allow them to develop as individuals and as um, as groups, and, and therefore have that much more to to bring to community uh, with each other and with us. So so politics is is crucial on both those dimensions of ensuring that animals have the chance to actually develop meaningful, um, ha- have good and meaningful experiences, and also that those that that um, the knowledge and competence and creativity that they develop then is fed back into our sort of collective collective ways of being. So that's two crucial dimensions, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the, the better our policies are, the more space we create for animals to have more varied and meaningful experiences within human and other communities. Um, I'm assuming that this would stretch beyond just, hopefully beyond just the communities that humans are in, but to, I guess, create the space and freedom for animals to have enriching experiences. Uh, but then what I start to, and, and again, this maybe comes back to the question of conflict. It's easy now when we're speaking at this kind of like abstract level to think, okay, well, how does everybody get what they want? So is this now just saying everybody gets whatever they want whenever they want it? Uh, there's thousands of different types of animals within our communities. Um, like whose interests should we be taking seriously? Are we just looking at like making different hierarchies? Uh, how do we, how do we, you know, begin to think through the amount of needs and wants there are when we open up beyond just humans? Yeah, good question. Okay, so one way we have of thinking about this in in sort of political terms, in terms of, say, democratic politics, the answer to your question is that when we're trying to coordinate our communal life together, that, and inevitably, that means, so people have very conflicting ideas about how we should do that, and, and we have limited resources and we need to distribute those and uh, opportunities fairly. So the usual view by democratic theorists is that everybody, we don't have a right to get what we want. Um, We don't have a right that our preferred uh, ideas about how the community should be organized will prevail. That is something to be sorted out in democratic politics but what we do have a right to is an equal opportunity to participate in the decision making about those questions mm-hmm. so we all have an equal opportunity to have a say in what happens now we may not like the eventual decision but we have to be heard we have to have an opportunity to participate to participate in deliberation about what happens so of course the classic way of thinking about that is that we all have a vote and mm-hmm. that uh that a fair decision uh isn't you know the fair decision isn't necessarily the, the decision i want but we have um we have a democratic process that creates fair decisions even though any given decision 
is always going to have people who are happy with it and people who are unhappy with it. So that's, uh, so I think the way to think about bringing animals into politics is not that, oh, suddenly we, they get to have everything they want. It's no, that they get to have a, they get to share power. Uh, they get to have a mm-hmm. say in how decisions are made, but that doesn't mean that it's always going to turn out the, the way any individual animal wants it to turn out. There's going to be, you know, that's, that's something to be sorted out as a community. Do you have any examples of uh, communities that are maybe starting to have, you know, multi-species communities where these types of tensions and conflicts that arise in a community are starting to be navigated? Are there any sorts of examples that we could turn to for inspiration at the societal level? Yes, well, um, I'm very interested in certain kinds of animal sanctuary communities. So specifically the sanctuaries that have arisen oh, f- over the last 40 years um, for formerly farmed animals. So farm sanctuary in, in the US, I think was the first, but now there are hundreds and hundreds of, of um, sanctuaries for farmed animals, formerly farmed animals. And I'm interested in these communities because, in part because they are multi-species, so, so um, many, many different kinds of animals, and they're fairly large. So they can, they can unlike um, just, say, looking at human-animal relations within the context of a family uh, or some other specific, more limited, I guess, set of relationships – Farmed animal sanctuaries have many, many individuals, so, you know, several hundred in some cases. So they're a little bit more like a microcosm of a, of what we think of as a, mm-hmm. you know, a town or a city that has government structures. So um, that's one reason they're interesting. Another reason they're interesting is that they are, you know, one of the, so we live in a world, obviously, where the, the prospect of animals being members of democratic community is is a long long way off and they are currently just subject to to violence and exclusion uh overwhelmingly but these sanctuaries for formerly farmed animals are little sort of alternative or intentional communities at least some of them where people are are humans and animals together are deliberately setting out to create a different kind of relationship and a different kind mm-hmm. of community, including different ways of governing that community uh, as a community. So uh, I'm very interested in uh, in spending time in these communities. And um, I've done um, research specifically at Vine Sanctuary in Vermont, which is a, a large interspecies community for formerly farmed animals. And through studying the way that humans and animals are working out a new way of living together in these communities, I think we can start to get inklings of what uh, what this new mm-hmm. politics might look like. And uh, so I've, I've read a paper that you were doing on sanctuaries and, and some of the beginnings of this, and I know one of the components of this politics that you mentioned is the idea of, I think you mentioned citizenship, belonging, but also the idea of dependent agency. And and I, I thought that that was a really provocative idea. Uh, could you explain that a little bit more? Yes. Um, so actually now I, I tend to use the 
phrase more now, either relational agency or interdependent agency? Because I found people misunderstood dependent agency. They tended to still divide people up into those who are the dependents and those who are independent. Uh, whereas the idea of dependent agency, mm-hmm. we're, we're all we're all dependent agents. But so I'll, I'll speak maybe of, of relational agency. But the idea is that um, so so I think in your your discussion with Lauren Corman, you talked a lot about you know ideas of the subject and intersubjectivity and and that we really are beings in community with others um, and uh, and the way that our agencies are realized is is always in this web of of relations with others and so our agency isn't something if if there's some way that I would like the world to be uh, that would suit me better. Um, our agency often isn't just a matter of me then being able to make that happen. Almost mm-hmm. always our agency is is uh, achieved through relationships with with others um, with our environment. Um, and so the idea of relational agency is that often what what is required is that others support our agency. So that can be at a societal level through, you know, at helping us achieve an education and, uh, and experience, you know, experiences and competences and so on. Um, it can be through various kinds of uptake, right? So often in order for something to change in the world, to suit me better, it requires somebody else to pay attention to, to mm-hmm. what I need or what I want to be responsive in appropriate ways and to help make that happen. So, so we are all bounded individuals. We're not, we're not just free to do whatever we want. We all have restrictions on our behavior. So how does this, this kind of recognizing that we're all bounded, um, how does it play out at the sanctuary, like in the sanctuaries that you were at? Um, how does this play out in terms of creating some political agency or a space for decision making for the animals in those in those sanctuaries? Uh, how did it begin to change the way that you saw animals experiencing that space? So there are many ways. Um, so uh, there's a paper that I wrote with uh, Charlotte Blattner and Ryan Wilcox and was part of a larger uh, research group that spent time at Vine. Um, and one of the things that we were looking at there was in, in terms of the nature of the community was how the animals say take on certain roles in the community or how they establish norms. And these are across, you know, multiple species and how they negotiate these questions. But another key dimension, and this is more, uh, it's part of the relational agency, I guess, is how, so for example, when animals arrive in the community for the first time, how those animals who are already resident help them learn the ropes, right? So this can be about mm-hmm. about the norms. It can be about, you know, op- things that they can do, with ways to access food, all kinds of things. So the agency of those newcomers, of course, is supported by the residents who already sort of have know the ropes, right? This is how we do things around here. This is how things work. We experienced this as researchers there. So, so initially, we were very careful about initiating any interaction with 
with the animal residents. We didn't want to kind of impose ourselves on them or, or assume that we had, had rights to interact with them. And we also didn't want to get in the way of the activities going on in the sanctuary. So we were sort of standing apart and spending a lot of time just kind of watching and the animal residents started to make quite clear to us that this was aberrant and really not very polite behavior. <laughs> and so it, so once we actually started engaging in activities, uh, so helping build a fence or then then it was like, OK, now you're now you're behaving the way you, you ought to in this community. Um, and so <laughs> and, and similarly around things like touch, I mean. Um, you know, we were getting nosed and licked and, and, uh, and nudged constantly. And at a certain point, we realized it was actually impolite not to be engaging in this norm of that we, that we touch and sniff each other. That's how we sort of find out about each other. So we were, you know, we arrived in this community as total novices about how things are done around here. Uh, like all social species, you know, we are attuned to norms. What, what, what should we do? You know, I don't want to offend anybody. What's the right thing to do? And the mm. existing members of the community helped teach us those norms, right? They, they helped bring us into community. So that's, that's one kind of, uh, of way in which our, you know, our agency that allowed us then to not just be more comfortable, but then allowed us to start to get into a kind of deeper relationship with the members of the community and to have access to seeing things a little bit differently, which we couldn't have done on, we couldn't do that on our own. We, we needed to be uh, welcomed in and taught by the, the members of the community. So when you're speaking about community and multi-species community, what are we, who are we talking about here? Uh, you know, are we speaking about pigs with pigs and cows with cows, um, pigs and cows together? Um, or, you know, is it only conspecifics uh, or how are we, when we say multi-species community, are we just thinking about humans with other animals? Uh, so somewhere like Vine is uh, many, many different. So um, ducks and turkeys and chickens and pigs and sheep and goats mm -hmm. and cows and emus and alpacas and so many 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 different kinds of animals and many of them living together which is why uh, i guess as a it's a very illuminating place to think about specifically about cultural or political community because there's no way in in looking at the norms that have developed in this community and um, and the roles that animals adopt, which are often you know cross species lines, there's there's no way to fall into sort of um, lazy habits of thinking that these are just cows being cows or that these are the animals mm -hmm. following scripts that have something to do with their species. No, these are animals creating a community together. Uh, including human animals in this community. For someone like me, I, I have no background in ethology. I can't, uh, unlike somebody with that kind of training, who even looking at a, within a single species community, could very quickly probably understand that, you know, which which uh, behaviors and practices are cultural versus which are not. Um, I don't have that 
though that skill set at all. So in a way, a place that uh, that uh, like Vine, where all these different kinds of animals come together, it's it makes it easier for someone like me to see immediately that what we're talking about here are our our culture and politics because um, there's you know um, these are animals having to figure things out across uh, across all kinds of species lines. Um, That's so interesting. Do you think that uh, you know your background as a researcher would shape the way in which you understand the animals' experiences? Um, you know that maybe if you were, uh, I don't know if you were going in there with a very specific set of ideas with regards to what these animals should be doing, you would frame them and their cross-species relationships as being abnormal uh, instead of emergent. Yeah, that's a really nice question. And I think people do have these kinds of concerns, right? They So if we think about domesticated animals, they are obviously, you know, in many, some cases, thousands of years removed from whatever their ancestors kind of existence was without human uh, Mm -hmm. involvement and interference. Then in many cases, they have undergone, you know, horrendous domestication practices. And in many ways have had their opportunities to be cultural and social beings, you know, t- terribly limited. So, so you know, if you think about what happens to animals in farming, the first thing is that uh, families are torn apart and, and friends are torn apart. So, so even the possibility of, for, a, say, a young animal to develop an identity, to develop, a, you know, uh, to, to have any sort of experiences that allow them to really develop it as a self, uh, um, so, so we strain these terribly, um, and many people rightly look at that and and say, you know, we've we've you know, not only has this relationship been one of, of violence and exploitation, but it has so diminished the ways that these animals can um, can can live and flourish. Mm-hmm. But then this goes, then they, they sometimes, you know, they, so so then the idea is somehow that we have to get animals back to some mythic, you know, wildness or whatever mm-hmm. that their ancestors might have had. But I just think that, no, we, we uh, all we need to do is, is take, you know, the boot of tyranny off their necks and create opportunities that allow them to, to um, create new forms of association, new forms of community, new ways of flourishing. We have no idea what that's going to look like. First, we yeah. we open up the possibilities and um, and allow them to to sort of lead the way uh, to what that might look like. But we can't if we start out at that process already with ideas either that it's not possible for them to explore and create new ways of living that, 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 you know, that it's already hopelessly diminished because they can never be maybe truly wild again. Um, Those are very limiting ideas and those are our ideas, right? What what we should be doing is Mm -hmm. setting up a situation where we can find out what their ideas are about um, how they might want to live together uh, and live with us or not live with us, depending Um, that's, you know, these are all things to be, to be negotiated. That's so important. And I think that's such a completely 
revolutionary way of thinking about things. So when you're no longer looking at someone with a script and saying, this is the way you should or shouldn't be, but actually just trying to understand the ways in which they're currently navigating the world uh, and making decisions. Um, you know, what could our world look like if we started to take those observations seriously, if we started to give them some credence instead of saying, oh, but you're behaving abnormally. I think anyone who's been told that they're not behaving according to a script knows how infuriating it is. Um, I know personally that when I was told <laughs> that I throw like a girl um, and that I didn't quite conform to that script, I was infuriated. And I did everything I could to show that that script was wrong. Um, so I think, yeah, it's it's really profound what you're saying. That what do we start to see when we when we drop those those pretenses? When we when we don't think, okay, this is what your wild cousins do, or this is what cows in you know South Africa do. What do cows in this particular community do? What decisions do they make? Uh, you had, I think, a really nice example of, I remember a presentation, I think, that Lauren Van Patter, who I know did the, the research with you, uh, also spoke about, was there was an example of a cow wanting to move between different pastures in at Fine, uh, and you saw that as a view of agency. Uh, could you maybe just tell us a little bit about that story? And then I, I know that we've been chatting for a while, <laughs> so I'll start wrapping things up. But if you could just tell us that story. Yes. So I just want to um, give a little context here. So going back to our discussion about relational agency, one one way that an agent, agency can be enabled is through creating various kinds of routines or uh, practices or structures um, that humans and animals can use to negotiate decision-making around. So, so there are many lovely examples of this at Vine. But one is that is how a particular fence line works. So Vine has a, a large, more what we I think of as the commons, where there are um, many, many different kinds of animals all living together. There's also a very large, extensive acreage that goes sort of up the side of the mountain, forested and open pasture. And here, a, a more sort of semi-feral, I guess, um, cow community of 20 to 30 cows, at least, who live up there a lot of the time, basically just on their own. I mean, humans check on them for health checks and, and that kind of thing, but but they 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 live fairly independently, much more so than than the animals down in the commons area. Anyway, there is a fence line sep dividing this area. And the vine humans um, do make decisions. So so like uh, often when uh, um, cows come from the dairy industry, they they have been, uh, you know, their, their health is deeply compromised. They may have very weak leg muscles because they've you know, spent most of their life in a barn. And so so initially they'll be down in the commons area until they sort of develop, you know, more muscle tone or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. animals who are frail uh, are, are encouraged to stay down in the commons area. Um, <clears throat> similarly, there's some cows who are really not allowed into the commons area because there are some who are just either so large or rambunctious. They just... Um, uh, and they they don't the you know most of the cows in the commons uh, follow, follow certain norms about um, 
about not running or in any way, you know, uh, uh, not running in the in the barn itself, for example, where they would endanger small animals and so on. Anyway, but there's some some cows who just, you know, aren't happy with those rules. And so they're much happier being part of the the community up on the hill. But anyway, cows do go uh, back and forth. So some never choose to go back and forth. Some go back quite regularly. So they have friends in both communities. They like being part of both communities. And so the, the fence works as a decision point. So it's everybody knows, the cows, the humans, that if a cow goes and stands at the gate separating these two areas, they're asking to join the other community. It's, it's not that complicated. Uh, and so largely they go back and forth uh, at will, except for particular cases where the humans impose a paternalistic assessment that um, that somebody poses a danger to themselves or to others. But I think the case that you're thinking of was a an older cow who was not very well. Um, and so the vine humans didn't think she could survive another winter up on the harsh conditions that the, 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 the semi-feral community live up on the hills. So they had brought her down, but she really resisted this. So she would go to the gate and ask to be returned. Uh, and they would discourage that. And, um, but at a certain point, um, when she insisted again and again and again, that no, she wants to be part of the upper pasture community, then at that point, the vine humans agreed. Um, so, so there's this very interesting negotiation of, um, mm. so the, the cows have a lot of agency here about deciding which, uh, these quite different ways of, of living, uh, between these, uh, one side of the fence and the other. And the fence is a way of actually a communication device that allows them to, to exercise agency and to, to go back and forth and, and be, um, change their mind about about who they want to be with or how they want to live. And it's also a communication device of how important something is to somebody, right? So so you can imagine that mm -hmm. uh, on a given day that a cow might say, oh, you know, I really want to come down and explore the commons. Um, but the humans say, well, no, because, you know, there was a problem last time you were down here. And the, and the cow goes and never goes back to the fence again. And so it Maybe just wasn't that urgent a request, we could say. But mm -hmm. in the case of this cow, it was clearly a very urgent request. It was an insistence that, no, um, I'm making this choice and this is what I want. Uh, and then, you know, this is the negotiation that we always have to make about, you know, uh, when we're in a relationship where we may think that the other person doesn't know all the things that we do about um, about their interests. Uh, but on the other hand, they also know things about what they want and need that we don't know. Right. And, and so these are the kinds of that's you know, this is just one example. There are, uh, you know, daily at Vine, these negotiations are going on about, uh, and, and Vine has set up a, um, situation where animals, the animal residents can contest, so everybody has to, in any kind of community, has to live by certain norms, certain rules, certain routines. The thing is, do you have a chance to have a say? Do you have a chance to contest decisions that are made? Do you have a, a way to have mm -hmm. a voice in changing them? 
And this, this to me is about political participation in shaping your community. And again, it doesn't always mean that you get the choice that you want. We never, never, any of us get that in, in, in terms of uh, mm. political community and, and shared and, and negotiated life together. Um, but it's really important that we all have a chance to communicate what's important to us and to negotiate with others about how we live together and to have a role in shaping the uh what what this what this place that we live together in what it looks like and how it operates so um yeah that's I think that's such an important example uh, you know, it really does show that one, not all animals' experiences are standardized, that different individuals have different experiential desires um, and wants and needs. And it really, I think, ties back to, as you were just saying now, the idea of multi-species political uh, communities, that if you create a fertile ground for listening uh, and for comprehending what others might want, you can you can create an opening space for those experiences to happen, but like you say, that's not a free for all. That's not oh anything goes. Uh, I think that's really important and vital. And you've you've yeah, and 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 just again coming back to the idea of experience, um, what this theme is about. I think you've really yours and Lauren's episodes together. I think really kind of drive home how important it is to have these really complicated and difficult conversations, but I think yours starts to maybe unravel some of the potential uh, everyday solutions. How do we see boundary markers as communication devices? How do we see bodies as communicating? And and how do we accept the things that we don't understand either? So thank you so much for that, Sue. Um, we're moving now towards the, the end of the episode, and I normally give uh, interviewees an opportunity to read a quote. Uh, it can either be a quote from your own work or a quote from someone else who's inspired you or who you think has, you know, has something to say on this type of theme. Uh, do, do you have a quote ready? This is actually from Audre Lorde, an essay that she wrote many years ago about the uses of the erotic. Um, so this is the quote. The erotic functions for me in several ways. And the first is in providing the power which comes from sharing deeply any pursuit with another person. The sharing of joy, whether physical, emotional, psychic, or intellectual, forms a bridge between the sharers, which can be the basis for understanding much of what is not shared between them and lessens the threat of their difference. So here, I mean, so by erotic, Audre Lorde, of course, is talking about much more than the sexual. She's talking about any of these connections we have with others of joyful connection mm -hmm. uh, in, in various ways. And I really like how she points to the this particular kind of knowledge that we achieve about others through connection, uh, embodied connection and engaging in activity to, uh, together. And a lot of what I see in this is, so it's what happens, you know, in, in good relationships with the animals that we live with, uh, in these sanctuary type communities. We have opportunities for sharing joyful activity with non-human mm -hmm. animals uh, and negotiating various kinds of activity, cooperative activity. Um, and I think this is a really important route to understanding and to getting over our mm -hmm. worries about, you know, whether 
whether we really are understanding what animals want and need and what they're saying. I think when we really engage in positive, joyful enterprise activity, um, that, that we overcome that, that divide to some extent. And Audre Lorde goes on in that essay to just talk about then the power of that connection. Once we've started to make those connections with others and to achieve a kind of understanding that comes mm. through that, um, then we're really, we're really committed to enlarging that and to preserving that, to creating that, to, to um, protecting that. And so I think it becomes a really, you know, thinking more say, as an advocate, an animal advocate, comes a really powerful avenue. It makes me think a bit about uh, Katie Gillespie's concepts of intimate geography as well. Um, and there is something in that that kind of intimacy and that kind of, uh, that willing, you know, so Linus, who's slowly becoming a sub-character of this podcast, because <laughs> I think he comes up, there's something about living with an animal where when I have these conversations, he just, so you know Linus, of course, uh, Linus and oh, yes. uh, Roxy is your 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 doggo and they are very good friends. Best friends. And there is something <laughs> best friends, I'm sorry, they are best friends. But there is something in those joyful moments that Roxy and Linus play together in a way that Linus doesn't play with any other dog. Um they have different I remember in the early days when they'd first met one another, they run with each other and they they body bump. They make a, a point of mm-hmm. just touching each other when they run. They run shoulder to shoulder. And there is there is a, an active, joyful element there. And, and the more they've become comfortable with one another, the more that's changed and deepened. But even so Linus has only been in my life for a couple of, of months now. About eight months, almost when this podcast launched, actually. So <laughs> that's why he's such a feature, I guess. Uh <laughs> But even just today, he's starting to cuddle and he's starting to wag his tail. And you start to see these moments where I, I don't need to get too into my head to know that he's experiencing joy and I'm experiencing joy with him. Uh, so a really beautiful quote. Thank you for, for sharing that. Yeah, I um, I I think we we really are galvanized by this kind of connection so seeing it as you described between Roxy and Linus uh seeing it between the animals at at in some of these sanctuary communities so I think this is a really vital place to ground always our thinking about animals and thinking about their experience and and that and the 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 great challenge then is to move out from that so so ground ourselves there in in that kind of connection, but then how do we, how do we translate that up into, into Mm -hmm. political decision-making? You know, how do we move from that concrete connection and, and appreciation of their experience, understanding, I think at some level of, of experiencing and, and shared experiencing and Mm -hmm. Yeah, and start to translate that into um, more systemic terms, more communal terms. Um, That's, you know, to me is the real challenge, I guess, of of animal politics and doing democracy with animals. And So, so well said and beautifully said. Uh, Sue, we're wrapping up now. um, But before you go, I just wanted to ask... uh, do you want to maybe share with us what you're currently working on and uh, if folks are interested in your work, uh, where they could find out more about you? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I've just recently um, 
published a paper called The Animal Agora. And so that's about doing democracy with with animals. Um, And that's part of a larger project um, uh, that I'm working on with Will Kimlicka. Hopefully, hopefully might be a new book one of these days. But um, yeah, on political agency and political community, many of the ideas we've been talking about today, and how how we really, yeah, uh, recognize animals as as political agents and actors, um, and how we facilitate that. So that's the the current work project, and um, yeah, I have um, I have an academia page, and uh, I think you'll be putting up my email, so people are uh, most welcome to contact me uh, through email. Yep. Awesome. Well. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you not only for your time today uh, on the episode, but as well as always for for enduring all of my my babble off, <laughs> off, oh, no. off air as well. I tend to talk. I tend to talk your ear off, and uh, I, I very much enjoy uh, chatting to you always. So uh, thank you so much for for everything. Thank you, Claudia. I, I always enjoy all of our conversations, and and this was really lovely. So thanks so much. Thank you again to Sue Donaldson for joining me, to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this podcast, to Jeremy John for the logo and to Gordon Clark for the great bed music. I'd also like to remind you to please leave me a review. Uh, You can leave a review on podchaser.com. It's actually a really cool website. You can make podcast lists. I've made two podcast lists there myself, one of which is looking at uh, animal scholarship podcasts and the other that looks at animal advocacy podcasts. Uh, If you see any that I'm missing, feel free to let me know. The Podchaser is a really cool spot. And if you could leave me a review uh, on Podchaser or on iTunes or anywhere where you listen to your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it appreciated. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hertenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!